Welcome to The Power of Stories, a podcast by women, about women, and for women. Their voices and their stories. I am Sharon Catherine D'Agostino, a passionate advocate for the empowerment of women and girls everywhere and the founder of SayItForward.org. And I'm Yodit Kifle-Smith, a creative dedicated to making sure the voices and stories of women are heard. I have the privilege of working with Sharon on SayItForward.org to do just that. In this podcast, you will meet courageous women from around the world whose unique path to empowerment will leave you encouraged and inspired. We are very excited to have Philogene Anumo joining us today from her home in Nairobi, Kenya. Philogene is a young Pan-African feminist activist who is committed to advancing gender equality. She is the author of the Feminist Leadership and Development Curriculum for Adolescent Girls, and she currently works at the Association for Women's Rights and Development. During her free time, Philogene loves to explore the world with and through the lens of her eight-year-old daughter. Philogene, welcome. We are so excited to have you. Thank you so much. I'm so, so glad to be here. And just thank you for all that you do, the amazing work that you do, and who you are, Sharon and Judith. Thank you so much, Philogene. We are so excited to talk with you today. The first question that I have is, what in your own life led to your activism? I think my turning point was when I joined the University of Nairobi and I was campaigning for leadership to be the chairperson that uh, represents women students at the campus. And there were a total of seven campuses. So campaigning was a nightmare because they were not all in the same place. I had to traverse the city. And so when I got there, I think the realization of all the challenges that um, young women uh, and girls face especially because they were looking up to me as a leader, you know, and coming to me with all sorts of challenges from financial and economic challenges of not being able to stay on with school because of lack of school fees to reproductive um, health challenges and lack of access to care to crucial services like abortion care and post-abortion care and to all the stereotypes, you know, that young women face, the sexualization and everything that comes with being a young woman, particularly in a country that's faced with Um, high prevalence of poverty. And so for me at that point, I named myself an activist, one, um, because I thought there was power in being active and actively um, taking a stand against um, situations that are oppressing a certain population. But it's also the first time that I found myself on the streets actually protesting. And fortunately or unfortunately, that's something that's known um, with University of Nairobi students. Um, But it also made a lot of sense to me because then I began to understand um, the principles of where we need to be seen, how we need to occupy spaces. And perhaps at this point, it's also important for me to say the importance of platforms like this, because we have to occupy spaces, be it online, be it on the streets, um, be it in media, and wherever we feel that our voices are not being adequately represented. And so uh, an interesting fact is that I actually went to school to study food science and technology. (laughs) And so as soon as I finished, I graduated, I put my degree on the shelf (laughs) and went on to work with the women's rights um, non-governmental organization. And it was called Women in Law and Development in Africa. And um, that was really, uh, we can say, a deep learning curve for me because my activism and lived experiences 
was almost plain catch up, you know, to the language, to the theory, to legal language, because that's not what I studied in school. Um, but I've been so passionate about it. And so, you know, I immersed myself in the world and I've never left. <laughs> you describe yourself as a pan-African activist. And given that there are so many countries in Africa and with really very distinct um, cultures and communities within every country, what are some of the issues that you see that run across the gamut? Um, I mean, Africa particularly, we know our colonial history really affects how we identify ourselves. And so for me, in identifying this way is pushing back, you know, to not be defined um, by colonial understanding of what uh, the African context should be about. But having said that, we can now see why there are many issues that are prevalent and there are certain threads in terms of what uh, we are trying to, to, to push back against a patriarchal oppressive system. We need to not romanticize what Africa was during pre-colonial times, right? Because when I think about this issue and when it's advanced, we draw our analysis um, and our understanding on what, you know, our colonial past, our religion, uh, or religion that was introduced to us, capitalism uh, and Western ideas have done to, the, to our present times. But then that is not to say that, you know, the Africa before all this happened was present. Uh, was, was, was a perfect place to stay, yeah? So also just to put that out there. A lot of the issues, particularly in terms of being a woman, the whole idea of a woman exists is fought in so many ways. Our bodies are fought, the continuum of how we identify, you know, gender, identity, and sexual orientation. Who we choose to love is always something that is contested in the continent. When we look at mainstream media, Whenever we see a representation of an African woman, it's almost always in the context of poverty, with a load on her head, with uh, somebody harvesting firewood, or carrying multiple babies and wrapping her barely covered breast. I don't know if that would be censored <laughs> on, on, on media. And so that also just perpetuates a certain idea, which of course is lived realities, right? When um, economies are doing badly, it's always the women in, in Africa who are the first to suffer and bear the brunt. In the context of war and violence, it's always the women who are left to rebuild the societies. In fact, in conversations of um, peace negotiations, it's women who are brought as an afterthought, you know, to come and talk about that. But when advancing ideas of militarization or war, then we know the face of that is men. And so women are often always on the almost the oppressed side of any system. What has been the the hardest journey for you or the hardest part of this journey for you? I mean, as a leader, people look to you um, for the right answers as you're walking through this journey of fighting for what you believe in, standing in your truth. What, what has been the hardest part of that journey? I think there've been a lot of turning points, especially where it has involved people that I love and people that I trust um, and saying no to them. I think that has definitely and continues to be the most difficult <laughs> part of my journey, mm -hmm. right? I definitely live in a context where a lot of what I would say feminist principles uh, are shouted upon or it's repressive to that. And I think the hardest part, even in conversations that are social conversations, you know, you're like, do I need, how, like, how do I wear my feminist activist hat here? Or should I pack it at the door type of thing, right? Um, and of course, 
often I have to bring it because it's part of the person. We say the personal is political, right? And so just always bringing my, my true self in, in every single part of my life, I can't say it has always been easy. This point that you've raised about saying no to people you love and trust. I don't know any woman who hasn't had issues with that, challenges with that. So what advice do you have for us about saying no? Practice, practice. I mean, I have worked um, with a therapist even on this one because uh, starting from the very basic level where every time I said no as a complete and full sentence, because I know we say no, and then we add so many things, you know, fluff, <laughs> because you're not comfortable, you know. So the first time, you know, like to get me into the practice of that is that every time I said no and put a full stop, I used to award myself almost like a soothe, a soothe seeking <laughs> to just be like, you've done the right thing. So that was how it began. And I think what has also helped me stay in, in, in this practice is every time you say no, you're saying yes to yourself. Keep saying yes to what you believe in. Keep saying yes to what you love. And it will come out as a no, but it's a yes somewhere and it counts. Philogene, did you, did you grow up in a family that encouraged you to, to, to speak up or to stand up? Or do you, did you feel like you were always kind of going against the, the grain of the way that you grew up and doing what, you're, what you did in university, but also what you're doing now? I'm from a small family, so it's just me and my brother. And I'm the last born. So I know there's a stereotype around last children <laughs> uh, about having their way. Perhaps that had a little bit to do with it. But I think also the fact that, you know, it was just me and him and then, you know, the gender distribution. Um, I never felt the immediate inequalities around access, right? Because everything was 50-50 by virtue of our numbers. But then when I reached university, I think that realization hit me. Definitely. Uh, what was not what was not obvious at the time became very clear around the inequalities. But then there was a lot of pushback, you know, from my, my father, for example. My father is a professor. And for him, he believed I should do a science. You know, what is this activism? Activism will not put food on the table, were his words exactly, right? And I think that is both from his perspective as, as you know, academician, as a scientist, but also from the lived realities, because you can imagine he was struggling to pay my school fees. And then he's seeing that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I will become an activist and, you know, I will suffer and I will continue this uh, generational poverty that he has really invested that, you know, I get out of. And so I could sense the fears um, and the fears showed up as lack of support. But thankfully, you know, we had a community um, that supported me yeah, and just the power of, of really believing in what you see. Because also I, I, I really told myself that he has not seen what I have seen. He has not witnessed what I have witnessed, right? I understand where he's coming from, but I have to hold on to the fact that I know what I know and I can make decisions at least at the time from what I knew. So what is the best advice that your mother gave you? I'm very, very good friends with my mother to begin with. Uh, so much so that when I found out I was expectant, I kept praying that it would be a girl because I was like the only, my motivation for this is that I want to reciprocate and replicate the relationship I have with my mom. And so she's been very pivotal to the person that uh, I am today. And the thing that I always remember, especially in moments where I'm doubtful of who I am, is she told me to stand in my truth. 
And every time that we had um, a moment, including when I was, you know, packing my degree to go and pursue activism, she told me, I will support you if you are sure that this is about you and you're standing in your truth and nothing else. And so for me, that's the thing that I always, um, you know, hold on to at any given time. So Philogene, how can we all encourage other women and girls to confidently use their voice and claim their power? What I would say from my journey, from motherhood, from my feminist work, I think we need to normalize the idea that women should not be afraid of their greatness. And their greatness, your greatness, your superpower is who you are. Nobody can be you. We should never be apologetic of who we are. Um, Do not dilute other women's greatnesses, but most importantly, tapping into our own greatness so that we can unleash the greatness of others. That's powerful. That is powerful. I love love what you said about just never be apologetic um, for being who you are. And I I know Sharon and I talk often of just, that's something that I'm learning to do more and more. So thank you for that reminder. And so just thank you so much, Philogene, for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Power of Stories podcast. Thank you for being here for your time. I love your advice that we should embrace our greatness. What wonderful advice to women and girls everywhere. And also that we should keep saying yes to ourselves. So thank you for your beautiful words of inspiration. Thank you so much, uh, Yodit and Sharon, for having me, for creating this space. I want to thank you on behalf of all the women and girls and gender expansive people from around the world. And just more power to you and, and with what you do. Thank you. Yodit, thank you. I always love having these conversations um, with you. And we also will send a big thanks to Lisa Dijavine, who is the co-producer and editor of the Power of Stories podcast. And to our listeners, we invite you to visit sayitforward.org, a place where you are welcome to share one or more stories about your unique path to empowerment or you can read the stories of other women and girls. This is Sharon Catherine D'Agostino and Yodit Kifle-Smith signing off for now and hoping you'll join us for our next episode of the Power of Stories podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we do hope you'll give us a review and recommend the Power of Stories to a friend. And lastly, we want to remind you of the power of your story.